Good evening. I'm Karen Kennerly, the director of Penn. And I want to welcome you to uh, not only an evening with Robert Stone and Mary Gordon, uh, another evening in Penn events, but the beginning of a new Penn series, uh, which is writers speaking about issues. Those of you who come to Penn events and have over the years know that we uh, usually have our writers talking about writing or reading or something connected to it, but it did seem to us that for two reasons it was time to us to break with tradition, at least in part of our programming, and have writers talk about whatever issues are relevant, debatable, hot, difficult, that um, is in the American air. Uh, one reason is that as um, American writers know when they're talking to European writers, particularly Central and Eastern European writers have always said, oh, you're so lucky you can say anything, 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 anything you want, write anything you want. And the American writer will say, yes, we're real lucky. It's just no one cares. <laughs> so um, since this isn't a country where when an issue or a political event comes up, the first thing the papers do is to rush to our best creative writers and say, what do you think? we decided that we would create a public forum that would fill that gap to some extent. Uh, what do our best creative writers think about American life and eventually other aspects too, not just America. So with that in mind, we are presenting the first of these evenings uh, with, as I said, Robert Stone and Mary Gordon talking about sexual harassment. Thank you. to distribute uh, cards among you that, um, upon which you may write down whatever questions you wish to direct to, to us, to both of us or either of us. And uh, when they're collected, we'll, uh, we'll have a look at them and we will be able to pick about six or seven of those questions and we'll, uh, we'll severally or collectively respond to them. Uh, I, I think that... Uh Bob and I decided to do this rather foolhardy thing um, because it, it seemed to us a hopeful gesture in a um, arena where not much hope is possible, that if a man and a woman of goodwill and intelligence can't speak about this, um, then it's hopeless. And so we begin with a feeling of optimism and goodwill. Uh, we may not end with one, but... <laughs> We may, uh, but but we begin with with a kind of confidence in each other and in the ability to have a rational conversation about um, an emotional topic. And because we are writers, I think that uh, some of the things that interest us a lot, because we can't really create legislation, we can't lock things into law. Both of us, I think, feel a little bit nervous and jittery about the American impulse of locking things into law as the only way of dealing with things. Um, so I think we're interested in issues of language, issues of a larger climate, issues of 
an environment of entitlement and, and what that says about, um, about many, many issues. For me, the issue of sexual harassment is the place in which language and the female body collide in the most radical way. And I was interested when the Thomas Hill hearings took place to think about what instances of sexual harassment there might have been in myth and history and literature. So I made myself a little, a little list. Um, and looking back, I found some interesting things. Um, the case that comes to mind about a woman who is not believed is Cassandra. And I think that one of the things that people forget is that the reason Cassandra was cursed, she was a prophet, she was a priestess, she was cursed with the curse of her prophecies not being believed because she refused the sexual advances of the god Apollo. That was her punishment. Um, now, that's one narrative level. But I think we have to, when we think about narrative, think about who's doing the talking and who's doing the listening. And that's a very important issue for sexual harassment. Um, two other um, examples come to mind. One is the case of Susanna. Remember Susanna and the elders? And uh, Susanna was, was lusted after by the elders who watched her when she bathed. And they accused her because she would not satisfy their lust of being an adulteress. How did she get out of trouble? Not because of her own word was believed. She got out of trouble because the prophet Daniel, the anointed one of Yahweh, who was also in favor with the court, was able to trick the elders and eventually to save Susanna. And the elders were put to death. But it had nothing to do with anybody believing Susanna. It was that a powerful man spoke for her to other men. Um, now, there's another story in the Bible about sexual harassment. And it seems to be the story that has, I think, uh, obviously not consciously, but engraved itself on... I hope this is not unfair to say the male mind with a particularly deep incision. And that's the story of Potiphar's wife, because it's the other side of the coin. Um, Potiphar's wife, uh, Potiphar is an officer of Pharaoh when Joseph, of course, is working for Pharaoh. Pharaoh's Joseph's master in the land of Egypt. Now, Joseph was a handsome young man, and Potiphar's wife desired him, but he refused her advances. So she accused him of trying to rape her. She was believed and Joseph was imprisoned. I think we have to think about issues of power here. But what I think is interesting is that later on, Joseph was released from prison because his services were needed by the state. He was the only one who could interpret dreams in the land of Egypt. So that even when the state says the powerful woman's virtue is important to us. It's still, even a powerful woman, even a woman whose power accrues to her through marriage to a powerful man, her honor is still not as important 
as a pressing issue of state welfare if the man happens to be able to come in and, and do a service to the state. What I'm saying is the honor of women, if, if they are connected only in an ancillary way to men, is a very fragile thing. Um, this is uh, interesting that men think about Potiphar's wife a lot more than they think about Cassandra and Susanna. Clarence Thomas's wife brought her up in about one minute. Um, you know, she spent a lot of time with her Bible. Um, I think that actually that the, that the story of Susanna disturbs me almost as much as the story of, of Potiphar's wife because, again, it shows how, the, how fragile the word of women is. It wasn't anything that Susanna did or could have done or could have said. She happened to have good luck. She got a powerful man to speak for her. Um, so I think the other thing that we need to think about in speaking thinking about language and sexual harassment is who was listening to the testimony of these women. Um, it was always men. And another thing we need to think about is what other questions were these women ever asked? So if the only thing that you're really interested in hearing about from a woman is what happened to your body. And women don't have a history, which we do not have for most of the history of culture and consciousness. If there's not a tradition of women being asked to report upon their own experience in a way that suggests that they're going to be believed, then we're always doing it ad hoc. We're always being asked to believe only when we say, you've done this to my body. Women do not have a very long history of being contractual beings, oath takers, people whose word is believed as witnesses. And I think that these, that these issues are very, very important because if you only really ask women what is happening to them, when their bodies are at stake sexually, if you only ask women to speak in a discourse that's important to you if they have cried rape or sexual harassment, and you have no context for women as truth-tellers, then you're always going to need a man to verify the woman's truth-telling. And it's just not good enough. What is missing from the narratives of all these women are women listening. Cassandra, Susanna, even Potiphar's wife didn't testify to other women. And so that made their language very, very vexed because they were testifying about an experience which was of necessity alien to their interlocutors. So that's, that's another issue about language and sexual harassment. Um, another thing that Bob and I talked about that, that I think disturbs both of us a lot is a general climate of entitlement that um, exists everywhere in this culture, which says that um, boys will be boys. I don't know if you've been paying attention to the um, Spurs case, Spur Posse in California. Um, there are a bunch of student athletes 
the oldest one is 18. And they've been accused of raping uh, girls. One of them actually has been accused of raping a 10-year-old girl. Um, but what I think disturbs the town is they clearly had a scoreboard for their sexual conquests. And for every number that they scored, they wore, um, they, they called themselves by the number, the, the team number, of, or how do you call it? These guys wear shirts, right? They're team shirts, they're team number. So like if, I don't know, Reggie Jackson is 66 and they had made 66 sexual conquests, they called themselves Reggie Jackson. And they bragged about it and they passed girls among themselves and it was a big deal. Um, the young women, the problem happened when the young women said that they were being bullied and raped. Now this is not exactly sexual harassment, but what interested me was the language around it. So that those who defended these young men kept saying, boys will be boys. And the girls were sluts. Now just think about the difference between those two phrases, boys will be boys, the girls are sluts. There was no, uh, there was no possible, even if you say they're, both, they're all kids, there was no way of putting the behavior of these young women, it's not outside the realm of possibility that they might have wanted to score with these guys to get status from them. I'm not saying that that couldn't happen. I don't think that original sin is confined to one gender. But even if they did, there is no language that could describe their sexual behavior in a way that would indulge them. There was no way that could describe their sexual behavior in any way that would not vilify them. Um, these are just some thoughts that I had um, about witness, entitlement, and the credibility of women, and what do we listen to women about when we talk to them. I, I think I would approach the question uh, in terms of uh, pragmatism at, the, at, at this exact, this, this, this point in time, this, this point in the history of America and the history of the world. There's no question but that women were seen as representing the irrational in the world sometimes even the perverse, and that most of the currents that made up Western society shared in this to, to, to one extent or another. Uh, the United States, in a way, one, made a claim for exceptionalism, which was, uh, which was seconded by, by the Europeans. It's, it was, I can remember, uh, a commonplace among Europeans that the United States was, in, in, in the late 50s, in the, in the late 60s, Europeans used to say that <coughs> America was wrong, wrongfully and excessively dominated by women. Uh, the European blades would claim that American women were like unbroken horses because they'd never been subjected to the, the domination of, of, of true males. Uh, 
this, in a way, goes back to the time of Henry James and uh, Daisy Miller, where da Daisy Miller, the American woman, appears on the scene of Western culture. Daisy Miller, who is the American woman, who insists on going out for a ride at night, violating what everyone believes to be the laws of common sense in Italy, and ultimately dies for, for, for asserting herself. Uh, the American woman was seen in European terms, and I think we really should we should we should we should put, look at it from those through those eyes. Go outside of our own society and and see how American uh, American women in this in this country in this society were regarded by Europeans. The, the according to Henry James and other students of American society who were representing American society to Europeans, uh, American women were seen as, uh, specifically and strangely and inappropriately empowered socially, certainly not in any serious way, but in the semi-serious world of, of polite society. America was known as the country in which Women did not retire from discourse after dinner parties, and not nearly to the degree they did in Europe. Uh, on the contrary, they they stayed, they remained. The 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 among young people, the 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 boy of a family might perfectly well be keeping company with his sister, which was seen as something of an aberration by Europeans and European. European authors have ascribed the puritanical nature, the prudish nature of America, and they certainly did in the 19th century, as one, as, as being that way because women weren't banished from polite society to anything like the degree they were in Europe. It was, it, uh, in most European societies, in French society, for example, uh, the, it, it was desired and insisted upon that the unmarried younger women be uh, semi-sacred, be chaste, be virginal, and certainly not mis mix promiscuously in society. But when upon marriage, it was presumed that women would then know the score, and then they could play after a fashion. Uh, the American history confounded that because of the this, these, these strangely athletic, strangely involved, much more present women that America had compared to the women in the rest of the world. And I think this is, this is worth, worth recording when we, when, when we think about, uh, about sexual harassment. Harassment, to me, means a problem that can somehow be confronted. I don't, I don't see what we can do about the past. We have to really understand what we're trying to address. If we want, if we, I mean, we are in a situation where we have to create common civility. We have to recreate common civility. I mean, we've had, we had up to a certain period of time, a gen, generally speaking, rules for polite society. I mean, God knows all rules in every society are universally departed from. But let's, let's assume that we have now a desirable state of affairs that we would like to bring about. Uh, this is going to be difficult because 
more than ever in the history of this country, we have completely differing definitions about what appropriate behavior or civility entails. We have to deal with a situation where, on the one hand, everybody's responsible for everything, but on the other hand, nobody's responsible for anything. We have a situation where, in the state of New Jersey, a law is being proposed to prevent anyone from smoking in a car that carries children in circumstances in which women can count themselves lucky if they don't get their, cut fr their, fr their throat cut, taking their, returning their video to the local mall. The less we are able to control in terms of ordinary going to and fro, the more we insist upon controlling. We are confronted with all manner of ironies as we see the ability of society, the, the inability of society in general to control the circumstances of everyday life, and as we see it more and more insisted upon that everyday life be somehow controlled. We have so lost any kind of common ground with, upon which we can all conduct ourselves in a civil manner that we, we insist that everything be de jure as our laws take less and less practical force we insist that our laws encompass more and more and the larger the number of laws proportionally decreases our inability to enforce them I'd like to just um, break in here for a minute about the whole notion of civility in law and private, the private and the public. There was never a golden age of civility for women. Um, there was, uh, and one of the problems with sexual harassment is it usually happens in private. And so I, I really think it's a vexed issue to invoke the word civility in an unquestioned way. Um, because I think one of the things that women suffered from was that um, we were harassed in private and then the door was held for us in public. And, and that was not really such a great bet. Um, and so I think one of, one of the um, cri cultural crises that we are experiencing now is, is women insisting that civility really wasn't such a great uh, bargain for us because what civility was hiding was often quite, quite heinous. Um, I was talking um, behind stage about an issue and, and we were all wondering whether this was sexual harassment, but I, but I think, and I'll tell you a story about my first day in graduate school to tell you what happens behind closed doors in a civil university context. I think we, we always have to be very suspicious of the word civility. We have to be suspicious of what is being protected and is it in fact a protection. And if we're all supposed to operate in a code of civility, if that code is breached and it's unwritten, what recourse does the victim have? I mean, after all, law exists because there is injustice and because there are victims. 
So although we live in a society where, you know, you can get thrown into the clink for smoking in a car, on the other hand, if you are a powerless person, the law is your only recourse. So I think, I think we have to be a little bit um, wary about the nostalgia of a civil past, which existed for far less than half the world. Um, just to tell this, this story um, about the civility of the university, I was 21 years old at the time, which was a long time ago. It was my first day in graduate school, and I was that time a poet. And I went to graduate school, the place where I went to study with a particular person. That was why I went there. So he picked me for his tutorial students. It was a very big deal. I was very excited. And it was my first day of school. You know, the new notebooks, you smell the erasers. It's very very high moment for us all. And I was, you know, really up for it. And he said to me, um, let me tell you what women writers are like. I smiled. I was very perky. And I said, oh, tell me, tell me. Um, and he said, um, well, in the winter, a male bear and a female bear go into a cave together. And the male bear, and I'm, I, you'll forgive me, and if, if, again, I seem to be uh, using offensive language, I'm always quoting. Um, in the first day of winter, the male bear sticks a pine cone up the female bear's ass because he doesn't want her to shit all winter. And at the end of the winter, he pulls the pine cone out of the female bear's ass and she shits all over the walls of the cave. He said, that's what women writers are like. That was my first day of graduate school. Now, I don't know whether that can be called sexual harassment, but what I'm trying to say is this is a climate. That, is that man was considered entitled to say that to me as a way of commencing our highly civilized relationship. I was the privileged, the talented young woman, and that was the way it started. I couldn't, this was, 22 years ago, there was no one I could have gone to with that story. No one. There were no female faculty. And everybody would have said to me, lighten up, kid. Now, the fact is, I then, I am somebody who doesn't suffer from writing block. I didn't write for two and a half months. And I had nowhere to go. And I think, if you operate under a rubric of civility, the problem is, that the person whose rights are infringed upon by civility has no recourse. And, and I think that's a problem we're suffering from culturally. Well, I, I disagree only to the extent that I think that is, that is an extremely effective argument for civility. I mean, it, it was an uncivil statement, an boorish statement, and uh, a, a, a moment's reflection upon what constitutes civility, I think, would have spared you that story. Except that I think he'd be a little bit more nervous to say it now. It isn't because women have been more civil. It's because we've put more guys. No, I don't. Uh, no, no I, I tell you, I, I, when I when I think of civility, I don't mean that everyone behaving in a you know, Byzantine uh, uh, state of politeness, of intense politeness to each other. I mean that uh, discourse be disciplined to the effect that no one's 
no one's dignity and no one's identity be, be, be so crudely insulted and demeaned. I mean, civility to me means uh, uh, the, the absence of demeaning language, the absence of arrogance, and the, the presence of considerateness. Uh, and I don't see this as something superficial. I mean, there are, although too many people, their, their, their consideration, their, their civility, their politeness is probably superficial. It is something that they impose on their own natures. But then what desirable uh, in, in human conduct isn't something that we impose on our own true natures. On we can't the contrary. I mean, we do not expect a just society to be self-policed. That's why we have the book out. But there are limits to the degree to which we can go, we, we can apply for law. Uh, law can only, we, we, can, we simply cannot make everything de jure. I mean, this is the point of, of uh, the, the, the quandary that we've come to when we're trying to make, and when we can hardly make any law stick. We can hardly make stop at a red light stick. And we then attempt to compound the law by making even more things that in practical terms are not enforceable to stick. I think we have really got to summon up the better angels of our nature. Well, in it, what other context has that worked? I think to a large extent what we have going in, in, in the United States and in other, other countries where some kind of social compact remains, however frayed, is that we, we have got to rely on ourselves. We've got to rely on our, our I mean, we, we simply are not going to be able to turn to some kind of cop who we can create uh, in order to, to uh, in order to settle this in anything li like, like appropriate terms. I mean, there are two, two, two questions here, two sections to the question. One is uh, women who are being victimized by criminal behavior, and I think our laws are, are probably nearly capable of coping with that, although that's in question. And then we have, we have the kind of thing that you're describing, the kind of, of morale-destroying psychological warfare that certain men conduct against against women and that f f to, to remedy that to address that we have got to turn to mutual goodwill and to a certain kind of civility we can't we can't make everything de jure we simply can't supposing however that there are imbalances of power it's not a man and a woman who are equals the man is um, the woman's boss or the graduate student's supervisor. Uh, and there are things that he can withhold from her be on the basis of this sexual harassment. I think, do you, would you disagree that that goes beyond the bounds of civility and that if we were not going to put him in jail, maybe you should get a lawsuit? Yeah, I think if, I think if any, I think anyone of any of any gender who presents another person with a, with a proposition of this, you, I want, I, you, do what I, you do what I want you to do, you gra gratify my sexual uh, desires or you'll be penalized. Uh, that's, that's, that's behavior that, that ought not to, uh, to be permitted and, 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 and should be permitted. And there is, I mean, if, if that is one step down in terms of, of uh, uh, applying to the state, it, it, if, you, if, if you shouldn't arrest the people who do that, you certainly ought not to, to continue them in power. 
But this implies, this implies a number of stages. I mean, if we're saying that a person who says to another person, gratify my sexual desires or be penalized and thrive by other means, uh, we then have got to go to the next. What, what about the person then who says, uh, and I think, I think we may have a case here uh, in the Hill Thomas situation. I mean, as far as I know, Thomas was never accused of insisting uh, that Anita Hill gratify his desires in terms of her advancement. My understanding, as I remember, was that uh, Anita Hill continued to go to Thomas uh, after he had made approaches to her, which she had denied and turned down. She continued to go to him for references, and she received the references. Now, I let me be a devil's advocate for Thomas in this situation. He did not, as far as we know, say to her, uh, do as I tell you or you're through. Even after she'd rebuffed his advances, he, he wrote her recommendations. And I would, I would submit this as, as being of a, of, of a different character than the person who says, all right, baby, you know, this is it, come across or, or you're out of here. And so, so there are great dangers. I think the question is, would he have written the recommendations if she'd blown the whistle on him? She says that she, I mean, she has said that she wasn't, you know, she wasn't inclined to blow the, the, the whistle on him. She, I mean, but the, l l let's, let's take it from what he's guilty of or not, gui not, not guilty of. He seems not to have been guilty of insisting that she do what he wanted in order to advance herself. She did feel able to go back to him for a, a recommendation, and she doesn't seem to have felt that this was, she was getting back in the frying pan by doing that. I mean, it's it's. I mean, there. It, it, it's only that there are. You know, that w at a certain point, we we. Uh, this is a multi-layered situation. I mean, there is crime against women, and there, are, there there is also the manipulation, of of women in inferior positions, uh, who are are who to whom it is put as in in terms of the classic Hollywood, casting couch, which we've all heard of. Uh, there's there's the the the. The simple challenge to women to, if they want to advance their career, they have got to, they've got to uh, satisfy the sexual desires of men. Then there is a situation in which it may be presented as good for them, as desirable for them, but, but it's, it's, it's at the same time not insisted on. So it goes through all these various gradations. So I think at a certain point, since we, since we will lose the perspective, if we try to make everything du jure, if we try to, to, to make all this uh, a single crime, we're going to find ourselves um, really leaving the realm of law and even reason, because there are, you know, there, there, this this becomes so, uh, so so vague and indistinct at different levels. Would you deny that a woman has the right to do the work for which she is trained without being put under psychological duress? So, for example, supposing. Um, threatening phone calls were made to this woman and that kind of threat um, made her psychologically uncomfortable. Now, nobody actually killed her. Nobody, nobody actually uh, put her in any physical danger. But the climate, just imagine a society which created a climate that said, 
unless you've actually punched her out, she can still go to work. What's your problem? If you're saying that what Clarence Thomas did should not be punishable, you're in fact saying that a more powerful person has the right to create an intolerable climate for his worker. I think the issue about the, the, issue about the Anita Hill uh, case has to come back to what would have happened if she had blown the whistle on Thomas? Who would have believed her and what would have happened to her career then? I mean, look what happened when she went before the Senate of the United States. She still wasn't believed. What would have given her the confidence to speak and to believe that she had the right to say, I am being harassed, this is intolerable, I will not take it, and I have the right to a career. And unfortunately, the only thing that gives women that confidence is a kind of mechanism which you're referring to as de jure in, I think, a rather unexamined way. Unless there is a place where women can confidently say, this is intolerable, and I have the right to say this without putting myself at risk, then intolerable situations are tolerated. I, I, you know, I, well, I think in the question of telephone threats, that is a, telephone threats are a crime. That's criminal behavior. But who and defines if, what's a crime? Well, I, I think that if I, if, I, if I telephone someone threatening them with violence, threatening them with anything, threatening them vaguely in, uh, in, 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 in sexual terms, I'm, I'm liable to the prosecution of the law, as I should be. Uh, now, sorting out uh, a relationship like Hill and Thomas is, is, is somewhat different. I mean, we don't have any record of Thomas actually threatening her, even implying that physical violence, and that's what w would be applied to her if she, if she didn't do what he wanted. I mean, that's, that's not what I'm that, saying. I'm well, saying it was, he created a psychologically intolerable situation to her, and that was violent. Okay, and what, uh, you know, may I, what, I would, what I would propose, I mean, I want to say two things. I mean, wh what ought to have been done at that point? I mean, this seems to me a situation in which an assistant the assistant to a judge uh, is working in the office. The judge insists on rather fatuous uh, come-ons. Uh, what can she do if not say to him, you know, you're, you're being foolish and you're being insulting and your conduct is demeaning, stop doing it. You know, I was in Cuba when, when, when the Senate confirmed uh, Judge Thomas for the Supreme Court and Grandma, the Communist Party paper, had the dilemma of announcing uh, uh, to, the, to, to the people of Cuba what exactly had, had happened with Judge Thomas and Anita Hill. And what, what they finally decided to do, I mean, because I, I was also in the press office when the verdict came in and I got some sense of how the Cubans were trying to handle this story. So what Grandma told readers in Cuba was that uh, each morning, Judge Thomas thought nothing of exposing his private parts to her. They were trying to make the Thomas Anita Hill case comprehensible in Cuban, Cuban terms. Because in fact, in Cuba, the idea of a person, of a man, 
uh, attempting to sell his sexual favors to, by, by uh, advancing them, proclaiming them, and and assuring a, a woman of a woman of a, of, of a, a, a transcendent time was incomprehensible. I mean, it was simply the Cuban, Cubans, the Cuban public, however uh, conditioned by years of, uh, of, of genuine belief in, in women's rights, uh, could not have really understood the, 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 uh, the, the Thomas uh, Hill case, except by having it reduced to what you might call its, its subjective reality at the, subjective, at the, at the, uh, the expense of its subjective uh, reality. Um, I don't exactly understand your point, um, and I don't exactly see how it would be applied to to this kind of situation. Let me simply say that it's objectionable if the woman thinks it's objectionable. Um, secondly, um, in my own case of uh, when this professor said something that, that genuinely created a psychological climate which made it impossible for me to do my work, I said nothing. I was 21 years old. I was on a fellowship. I was completely terrified that if I blew it, I'd be back typing and filing. Not a dissimilar situation from Anita Hill. Anita Hill's a working class young woman. She's the youngest of 16 children. And you know very well what that kind of class insecurity can make you take. I didn't say anything because I felt that I wouldn't be believed and there was nobody to say it to. I don't think that you want to say that that is a tolerable situation. Well, now, not, however, but, but a young woman would be able to say something. Well, how about saying it to Stonebridge? I mean, how about saying, you know, what a foolish Because I was a 21-year-old working-class girl on a fellowship, and that is exactly my point. That as a 44-year-old woman with a tenurable position, I now I'm not afraid of any man as long as he's been through a metal detector. But when I was 21, I was because I had things to lose, and I didn't have the confidence, and I didn't think I had the right. And that is where law has to come in. It has to give women the confidence to believe that someone's listening and something will be done about it. But Why would Anita Hill have, I mean, the, the, the history of women being believed is so despicable and so reprehensible. And when women don't have power, first of all, they think it's their problem. They think they should laugh. They think they should be good sports. That's a very common thing that women feel. Women have to feel the right to say, the right to say, cut this out. And then if the guy doesn't listen to them, they have to have another place to go. No, I, 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 I certainly agree with, uh, with, everything, with everything that you've said, that if, they, that, that if women find themselves in a situation where they are uh, completely prevented from functioning in what they do, what they've, what they've come to do by sexually inspired male harassment, they certainly ought to have some recourse. It seems to me, though, that their first recourse ought to be 
what everyone's first recourse is, and that is to simply confront the, the person who's putting this on them yeah. by, telling, by, you know, by telling him that he's got to stop. I mean, I think this is, in fact, Bob, what, you we're, know what we're moving for. You know we're better, you know no, better about the way power works than that. I think you we're moving. You know better than that. No, I think we're moving. I think we're moving in the direction where women feel increasingly able to do that. Why don't you tell the story that you talked about when you were on the okay, ship? Okay. I, 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 I will. I will. Uh, I, but I also would like to say, in terms of my, 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 my perhaps rambling digression in the direction of Cuba, was that, that uh, uh, the, this, w when we compare American concerns and American standards uh, with, with standards that prevail in other, in other countries, uh, we, you know, we, we may perhaps be able to learn something. I mean, the, Cuba, the, the, the Cubans really were not in a position to define sexual harassment in other than, other, other than the most, the most crude and primitive way. I mean, th we, we, we're we're talking about a civilized and progressive-minded country, in spite of its drawbacks, uh, that uh, really sees uh, these relationships as different. Uh, so I think we, and I, I think we have to. Bear that in mind. Uh, to we have to bear it in mind. We have to bear it in mind. We have to bear it in mind because it tells us where we're coming from. I'm, I'm still confused. But Are you saying that you think sexual harassment doesn't happen in Cuba, or that it's more tolerated? Or I'm saying that what the Cubans, for example, define as sexual harassment, is quite different than what we have come to define as sexual harassment, and I think. From the fr fr from that point of view, we're probably ahead of the Cubans. But it, it also consider, for what it's worth, the fact that a society that sees itself as progressive and that sees itself as empowering women uh, has a, a different view of things. My story on the ship about okay, I was I was once when I was in the Navy. I, w I joined the Navy when I was seventeen, and uh, at one point. I was on a ship, which was the kind of ship known in the Navy as a bad ship. It was ill-disciplined. It was dirty. It wasn't well-run. Its officers were slack. Things on the ship were not as they ought to have been. I came aboard. I was still 17. Uh, I found myself the subject of, I, I won't say the desires or the ardor or the affection of someone. Uh, I was getting sexual pressure. I was being sexually harassed in a fairly explicit way by one of the bosun's mates. Now, this guy, I'm sure, had a couple of farm animals back home on whom he lavished far more affection than he ever could have conceived for me. And I thought it was ironic because it seemed that while out in the street, I couldn't get to first base with any of the women I was trying to promote friendship with. I was a regular Helen of Troy on this, on this show. Every time I saw this, this, this person, uh, he had a message for me, and the message wasn't good, and it was sexual. And one night, one, one night I woke up 
in my rack, and here was this guy, and he was all over me. And I realized at this point, this was one I had to win, not being particularly, not, not, not really a person, person who loves to fight. Uh, he and I went at it with bunk chains. Uh, I really had to win that one, and I did finally win. And if I had not won it, uh, I would have been in real trouble on that ship before I could have got off it. Well, why didn't I mean, you report it to your superior officer? Uh, why well, didn't? Okay, why didn't I? Okay, I mean, in this, because they didn't want to hear that from me. The executive officer did not want some seaman going up there with this untoward and unpleasant story. What he, I mean, he, I mean, I, I, I remember the story, the, the, the possibly, the possibly apocryphal story of the guy in, on, on some other bad ship. Who, who inserted a, a, uh, a potato peeler, strategic part of his anatomy, uh, which got him into all sorts of trouble. So that he ended up with the doctor saying, okay, exactly whose potatoes were you fixing to peel? I mean, this, this kind of stuff went on in the Navy. It was not for nothing that the, you know, the old 19th century navies were, were, were referred to as uh, places of rum, rum sodomy and the lash. Well, I think what, you, what needs not. to be understood is that that was a period in your life which was parenthesized. You got out of the Navy. Women never get out of the Navy. Uh, and, and the only way you get out of the Navy is you get a little bit older, you get a little more power, and you get a, and having more power is what gives you a big mouth. And you have to believe that you will be believed or else you're always in that position of the 17-year-old boy that you were. And unfortunately, we don't tend to be as physically strong as our aggressors, which, of course, creates fantasies of Thelma and Louise heaven. But, but unless we assume that women should go around being armed, which I don't think anybody wants, even on our better days, we would prefer that to be a second choice, we are always in the position of the 17-year-old whose superiors don't want to hear it. And if we don't have physical force, we don't have recourse. But, I mean, let's, let's, let's talk about applying, let's, let's talk about what we can do about this. And, and, I mean, the point that I want to hang on to, really, is that, for the most part, except for the most egregious cases that can be addressed simply by the application of the law or by changing the law so that it can be more effectively applied, we are, I think, dependent on, to, to fall back on that, on that, uh, that bourgeois but, but uh, worthy word civility. We've got, I mean, we, we exist and, uh, on, by consent. I mean, we, we, our intercourse with, you, with each other, our way of going about in society, in a democratic country, is by conventionalizing our behavior in acceptable ways, by acting out consideration, by simply agreeing to get on with each other in ways that are not oppressive. I mean, this seems to me, it doesn't, it doesn't really seem to me uh, that law is, is going to be the answer. Now, there are, th this is not to say that law can't be changed and, and applied to be more effective. But I really, I really do, don't have faith in the ability of the law to protect us from ourselves. I think we really have got to come to some kind of, 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 of 
of standard, of, of, of general civility in order to resolve this question? First of all, you act as if there were laws that were working in the most egregious cases, and there are not. So perhaps that's one thing we could do, is to begin with law that would protect abuses from the most egregious cases, and we need to remember that we're very far from even that. But secondly, um, I think what we need what we need to do on the level of language and, and behavior constantly and with our sons and with our brothers and with our lovers is to say, that's not okay. You don't get to do that. And uh, I will tell another story. Um, I was on a, on a beach in, in Cape Cod, which is a, you know, not one of the A-list beaches. Uh, a lot of kids on the beach, and an 18-year-old boy, surrounded by a lot of 18-year-old girls, and I use the word girls advisedly, came onto the beach with a t-shirt that said, if God had meant men to eat pussy, he would have made it taste like a taco. And I was terribly upset. First, I didn't want my children reading that. And I walked up to this guy, and I said to him, you're not allowed to wear that on the beach. It's not okay. At which point, this young man and his, you know, five, this cohort of five young women thought that was hilarious. And they all had a big laugh, and it was one of my, you know, series of lifelong useless gestures. <laughs> Nevertheless, I think it's enormously important for us to publicly say and publicly to humiliate people who act as if it were the entitlement of boys to be boys and to say things that are going to make women's lives unpleasant. I was completely flipped out for the rest of the summer about that. It really made me have to think, is that what men think is all right? Is that what they really are thinking all the time? I mean, it, it wasn't something I got over in a few minutes. It really disturbed me. It disturbed me as a heterosexual woman to have to be thinking about all that. So I think we need to, you know, we need to have a lot of scarlet A's, verbal ones. Well, we, we can't keep people from being foolish. I mean, that is, that, there's no, there's no way to keep people from, from being foolish. I mean, we can attempt to channel their If that were an anti-Semitic shirt... Would you call it foolishness? If it were an anti-black t-shirt, would you call it foolishness? Or would you call it something worse? I think I would, call, I, I think I would be inclined to call it foolishness or, 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 all the way along the line. It's, it's, it's some kind of foolishness. Uh, the only way that you can deal with, with somebody who does something like that... Uh, because, I mean, you see, if you, if you create undesirable behavior, undesirable statements, undesirables, undesirable expression. I mean, youth is going to be drawn to that unacceptable behavior, unacce unacceptable notions, I mean, are, the, are, are, are meat and drink to kids. The more you establish the, the, the standards of what's acceptable and what's not acceptable, the more a certain percentage of, of kids are going to be drawn to what's not acceptable. They thrive on it. And you hope they outgrow it. And you confront them when they manifest it. But 
there, I mean, there, there, is, there is no way to turn multifaceted human, <laughs> human impulses in a completely desirable direction. I mean, we are all subject to, uh, to, to, to shocks, and, and some of us, some of us more than others. Those of us who, you know, who, who in 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 different situations, uh, appear vulnerable, are going to be, are, are, are going to be leaned on, are going to be, are, have our vulnerability exploited, but. There's a limit to to the degree that that uh, that one can actually turn to the force of law, and I think it's the ways. I think that most of what we're talking about exists beyond the law because I don't think there's much. I don't think that you know that, that the raping of ten-year-olds, or a bunch of teenage hoodlums running around doing what they what they want is is acceptable to 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 most people or to the law. I think what I mean. I see this question as something that exists largely outside the law. And what interests me and what intrigues me about it is the way in which we can possibly turn things around. Uh, but but there, are certain, there are certain casualties that we have to accept. Kids are always going to want to be perverse. They're always, wanna, they're always going to want to, to shock. But when kids are perverse in racist ways or in anti-Semitic ways, as communities, we tend to hit the hot button a lot more quickly than when they're perverse about women. And I think what needs to be in the discourse is that sexism is as heinous as racism and as heinous as anti-Semitism. I'm not saying that this kid should have been put in jail for, for wearing that T-shirt. But what I do believe is that if a bunch of uh, athletes had made a racially threatening or racially insulting remarks, I do not think that the community would have been felt free to be as split as it was. Nobody thinks, nobody of goodwill thinks racism is respectable. At least half of the United States Senate thought that what Clarence Thomas did was okay. So we have to create a climate in which sexism is heinous is equally heinous, is equally as heinous as racism or anti-Semitism or any of the, the uh, isms that seem to have got everybody out marching in the 60s. Because remember, women are killed daily. Women are the victim of domestic violence on a scale that is unparalleled because men think they own women and it's okay. And if they own women, and women are less important than, than males of whatever race, then that notion that women's welfare doesn't need to be taken as seriously, by which I don't mean chivalry, but I mean their bodily welfare and their psychological welfare, unless you take that fully seriously, no change can happen, and we're a very long way away from that. We wouldn't say boys will be boys about race with anything like the comfort that we do about sex, about gender. I think I think we ought not to, but I really, I really feel that uh, we're going to finally run out of things to just say no about. We're we're going to run out of things that we can pass laws against. I think that it's about the time that we started trying to conceive 
of something positive, of something that we might all somehow agree on uh, so that we can take the hits that we have to take from, from, from the intentionally perverse who will always be with us and about whom little can be done except when they reach the point of violating the law. I really wish there was some way in which we might envision uh, uh, a, a, a companionship, a resolution between men and women that might be expressed in positive terms. Well, I think one of the things that, that men have to do is to listen to what is offensive to us, because what you think is offensive to us, or what you think is okay, or what you think we might think is funny, we might not think is funny. And so one thing we need to do is to have conversations with one another in which women are genuinely listened to, which comes back to the point that I began with. Are women's words considered valuable? Are they considered vessels of truth? Or are we just part of the problem? Uh, and we're a very long way from that. There, there's a real gap between law and, 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 and conduct and the kinds of, I mean, things aren't subtle. Women get harassed on the workplace every day in, in ways that are not about a, a dirty joke or saying, I like that dress. Their lives are really made impossible and they still have no recourse. I don't want to get away from that. That law won't cover everything, but it will cover some things and we're still not there. Secondly, men need to know that what they have defined as civility and what they have defined as acceptable, even what they have defined as a joke, may not be what we think is civil or acceptable or a joke. So one of the things you need to do is just listen. And we're also a very long way from that. Shall we, uh, we will, we'll, I, I, this is my, I'm, I'm now exercising my, my capacity to listen. <laughs> okay, but but we, we, the questions, uh, we, we're gonna take some questions from the house. Oh, if we can take a little bit of, uh, of time to just go yeah. over them and we can maybe we can respond to six or seven of them. Or people were going to collect them, I think. Yeah, if, if, if you type your questions to the end of the row, Goran and Shauna will collect them for you, okay? In the meantime, for your listening pleasure, I'll tell you about upcoming pet events, okay? On Tuesday, April 20th, we have two panel discussions co-sponsored with the Center for Lesbian and Gay Studies. The first panel is Heroes Looking Back with Samuel Delaney, Sanford Friedman, Allen Ginsberg, Edmund White, and Michael Warner is the moderator. The second panel is Gay Men's Literature Now and Tomorrow with Christopher Bram, Dennis Cooper, Michael Cunningham, Dale Peck, and Asato Saint, and Robert Reed Farr is the moderator. We'll have a reception afterward, and it's at CUNY Graduate Center, 33 West 42nd. On Tuesday, May 25th, um, we have the Tra Penn Translation Committee presents Cross Effects, poets and novelists who also translate. Uh, a panel discussion with Paul Auster, Carolyn Forche, Edmund Keeley, Rico Lesser, and Tony Althwaite will be the moderator. That will be at the Penn office on Tuesday, May 25th at 7 o'clock. Hope to see you at both events. They're both free and open to the public. Thank you.
there, it, it came to our attention that, that there was a, a certain amount of frustration among some people in the audience who, uh, who didn't want to, in fact, ask questions, but, but wanted to make statements. Um, and um, I, do, I do understand that, but it was, as a matter of fact, something we were thinking might not um, be the most fruitful experience for the majority of the audience, because what we're hoping is that this form will be dialogic, and the, uh, the problem with a kind of statement at the mic is that it tends not to be dialogic. It tends to be um, more monologic. And so what we, what we felt is that if we, what we asked for was a question, that would be more conducive to a dialogic form than, um, than, than, than another form which might be the place for someone's quite justifiable um, sense of, of outrage. But we are more interested in the very form which we've created, um, we hope would lead to something more, more um, open and um, multi-voiced. Um, okay. Uh, seven seven questions or so uh, that we respond to, and we can both. I, I, I will read this question, and perhaps both of us uh, uh, can respond to it. The question is: What are the terms for the civility? What law? Because civility is precisely what has kept women from speaking out. Fear of the lighten up bash backlash. It seems there are different terms historically for men and women in terms of what constitutes civility. For women, be nice. For men, don't get caught. How do we meet in a common language over the civility? Okay. Well, I think, in the, I think we have to build on it. I really, I really do feel that, that uh, given the transitions that society is going through now, uh, I really think we have got to try and build things up from the, bo from the bottom up. I think everything that comes from the top down uh, is, it's, is going, it's, it's, its validity, its, its endurance is going to be put in question. So I really think that, uh, I, I, I really am going to stand by civility uh, as, as, because I really don't see anywhere else to go, really. Uh, what are the terms for civility? Uh, Civility has kept, has kept women from, from speaking out. But, but civility has been meant, and it in practical terms, in real terms, uh, it, it means that both men and women address each other with a certain diffidence and reserve appropriate to the human dignity of both sides. Uh, there, there, there is, in fact, a tradition of civil, of civil behavior uh, of men toward women. 
And although a lot of its secondary characteristics are patronizing and consist of things like opening doors and so on, nevertheless, uh, civility does incorporate a definition and a code of male behavior toward women. That is to say, behavior that does not demean or degrade women. And the tradition for that goes way back. Uh, whether hypocritical or not, uh, uh, it may be, but hypocrisy is not something that, that, that exists in the code or in the notion of civility, it exists in the individual heart of the people who apply it. I don't think civility is, is, uh, has, has ever been or been, been seen by fair-minded people as, as working entirely one way. I think if people comport themselves in a way that's respective of, of, of the dignity of the people that they deal with, uh, we, we, we will have made uh, a step in the right direction. It, it, simply it simply consists of acting out what we claim to believe in. Well, I, I think this, this question is really at the heart of the issue because I think we have to remember that civility is culturally constructed. And what is civil for one culture or one historical period is not necessarily civil, civil for another. And that, that, it seems to me, one of the great crises about being alive at the end of the 20th century is that we have to listen to what many different people say is how they would like to be treated. And we cannot assume that, um, that a Western, basically 19th century, male, definition of civility is, is going to work. Again, I think we're very far from knowing what that civility would be because we haven't listened enough yet. Not only do we have to listen, listen to women, we have to listen to different races, we have to li listen to different classes, we have to listen to different ethnic groups, and we're, we're, it will probably be the project of the new millennium to understand what civility might be, but we're so far from knowing what the terms of that might be that I have to keep believing that the best we can do is to remember how limited our notions are. They tend to be limited to our own experience and to the experience of whoever owns language at that particular time. And there are many people who have not owned language who have not even, you know, rented language. Um, and so at this point in history, before I think invoking civility, we need many, many years of humility and open listening. And that's where we are. We have to be at a moment of humbleness, saying we probably don't know. But I think it's enormously important to say we don't know but we'll try. What we would like is not to hurt you, but if we are hurting each other, to create an environment where he or she who is hurt feels confident enough to say, I'm hurt by this, don't do don't it. Do it. And, and that's the problem. That's the problem. But I think it has to begin by saying, we don't really know yet. It's a very big world. And we're just little, teeny little, this 19th century, I mean, Henry James, much as I love him, he had a little, little piece of information to share with us. And there's a lot more than 
something that James ever thought of. This is, okay. Don't, oh, this is a question to me. Don't you think your suggestion that a sexually harassed person confront their boss is unrealistic, given that most people, male or female, feel going to, uh, going to uh, you hesitate to do that because fear of the consequences. Uh, for example, your own case on the ship. Uh, well, I don't, I, I think in some cases it's, it's it's going to be unrealistic in which at which point uh, other means have got to be sought, but it has got, I think, to start there. Uh, I really think that as as let me, let me put it this way: I think as many as many times as this can be settled between two people by one person telling the other their experience of the situation, the better it's going to be. Once it gets to three people, the situation will be somewhat less clear, although it may be necessary to, to involve three people. And once it gets to five people, it's going to be even less clear. And finally, it's going, when, it, when it gets up to the realm of law, it's going to be subsumed in the process. And then we can all cross our fingers and hope for the best. There's no question but that we have to turn for law, to, to the law for rights. I think people have to know their rights, what their rights are. There are things that you have to put up with and there are things that you don't have to put up with. And I think you really have to know the difference. And what you don't have to put, put up with is insulting and demeaning behavior at your personal expense. Nobody has to put up with that. But it's obvious that the first place to start is by confronting the person who is subjecting you to this behavior and saying, don't do it. And if that doesn't work, and if it continues, then you have to go, then you have to go higher, then you have to feel that you have recourse. So th there, there must be recourse, but it, it ought not to be. I mean, if, if the situation is, is always that we have to go to an arbiter beyond the situation, uh, I don't think a great deal will get done. I think people have got to, to learn the language uh, of assertion. Uh, we ought not to let, we, we, are always, we always let ourselves be, be turned around. We have many unsatisfactory experiences in, in, all, in all ways, in all regards. The day is full of disappointments and it's an imperfect world. But people have got to stand up for themselves. This, this, you, you keep, I think, having a fantasy of equality of power. And if, if two people were equally powerful, it would be great for them to solve a problem in the privacy of their own room. The great weapon that the powerful have used against the powerless is the closed door. So I think that when we are talking about situations of inequality of power, and that is almost always the case with sexual harassment, the open door is the best friend a victim has. And I don't mean the door that, you know, where teachers feel like they can't have a conference a closed door with a student, but I think a person has to feel that she or he can go to a third person because if the other person has power over them, they have too much to lose and they have nowhere to go. A woman has to feel, or a man, 
who is being sexually harassed, that there is some place to go, and you can't feel that in a room mm -hmm. with a closed door if somebody's your boss or your mentor. Secondly, you have to have an audience that you think is going to believe you, or there's no way to stop these people. I mean, you you know about the dark heart of human beings. Most people don't stop acting badly unless they're afraid. Yeah, but people also use whatever circumstances and machinery is available to them for 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 advancing themselves at the expense of, they, of whoever they may conceive their enemy to be. At given, I mean, one thing we have to we have to uh, we have to uh, presume, it seems to me, is that. You know, we are, we are humans, and humankind is to some degree and to some extent always in depravity. Uh, human nature is not everything that it ought to be, and it never Sounding will be. Sounding positively Augustinian. Well, right. That's that my, my Augustinian side. I mean, let, let's, we can't... And, and Augustine was certainly not against law. He had a law for everything in the book because he knew how depraved people were. But the law, law can be used, law, law can be exploited in all sorts of ways. I really feel that uh, we, we have to have recourse. Everyone in a situation of injustice ought to have recourse. And if to the extent that we live in a vertical world with bosses, bosses inferiors, superiors, uh, in it's necessary that there be some opportunity for people to have to have recourse to some kind of, of fair-minded uh, resolving process. But it's also, it also becomes in practical terms very difficult. For, uh, a, a situation in which all these questions, all questions which are essentially personal, uh, uh, which constitute the kind of abrasive uh, world of the, of the workplace, if all these questions are always resolved, to, to another authority. This will not create a satisfactory situation. I think you have to examine your definition of the personal as well. Uh, that it, it, the personal and the private have long been the, the uh, hiding place of scoundrels. And just as civility is a culturally constructed concept, the personal is a culturally constructed concept which changes from historical period to historical period and from culture to culture, and as long as the personal is defined by men, and until men listen to what women consider the personal, and that moment in which the personal infringes upon the public, we still don't know what we're talking about, and I think we have to keep coming back to that. Um, this question is, uh, when I talk about I, they said, uh, you talk about witness. When you talked about the instant, incident in graduate school, why did you not tell women at least? It's a really good point. There were no women on the faculty when I was in graduate school. Not one. Um, and I think we also need to remember that this is one of the things that um, has changed, and this is one of the ways that we have made progress. Why? Because the minds and hearts of men have changed. No, because they're afraid of being sued. So I think we need to remember that the presence of women and, and other different faces in all, in all areas of life is not there because of goodwill, but because of the power of law. Yeah. 
did. <laughs> I mean, it did, eventually. Yeah, and I'm here now. I mean, he didn't shut me up for good. And I think the fact that I was able to talk to women friends. As a matter of fact, what we did in that graduate school, because we had no female voice, was we started a women's writing group, which met together, because we felt that we had, we were not being heard and not being understood. You would have thought that we were making Molotov cocktails. I mean, the, the amount of anxiety that we created in that fact, it was, <laughs> we're getting together and talking, anyway. But that's, that's an issue. It, it seems to me that we, we've talked, all we've talked about in, in the course of this evening has been that area of male behavior that is plainly objectionable and obviously reprehensible, that everyone really agrees is, is reprehensible. I mean, I'm wondering about that area of, of inter, intercourse, interplay between men and women which, uh, in a way, is there to be judged that to one person seems objectionable and to another not. I mean, we've talked about exclusively, relatively brutal psychological repression of women by male, and in a way, this is a, this, you know, we can say, we can, we, can, we can prescribe different cures for this, but we really haven't, we haven't really hit on area, any areas of, of, uh, of, of disagreement. I, mean, I think we've talked exclusively about whether whether this ought to be addressed, whether this can be addressed from the, from the bottom up among people, or or from the top down in, in, in terms of law and and, and relative uh, relative positions of power, but uh, I mean it seems there is this entire other area that uh, as the law, if if we do if we do try and change people's behavior by a mixture of the stick and the carrot. Uh, you have to wonder about the re repercussions uh, in in less hard and hard and fast uh, uh, definitions. I mean, the, the whole the whole the whole business of of men and women in the world, which is such an infinitely complicated, messy, confusing notion. I mean, how how do I mean, to what extent? Ought those things to be changed? I mean, it's, it's quite easy for us to say, well, we, 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 we are all against demeaning behavior and psychological pressure. I think, again, it's a matter of letting, when women have the confidence to speak, they'll tell you what's demeaning. And creating a larger climate in which women feel free to speak and free to say no, we're so far away from that that uh, that, that seems to me that sort of ought to be our major project. So for example, if you told a dirty joke to an 18-year-old, it might really distress her. If you told the same joke to your 50-year-old colleague, she might think it was funny. Or to another 18-year-old. Yeah, exactly. I think the issue is to create a climate in which people feel free to say, cut it out. And first, and, and this uh, I think segues into another question which somebody asked about uh, my t-shirt incident. Why am I blaming the man? She says, what about the, what about the young women that were with him? Um, I, as long as women feel that their ticket to ride is a man, and as long as they feel that they, that, 
that the most powerful thing for them to do is to get male approval. I mean, it's very, I'll tell you, it's very hard for women, even tough women, even smart women, to say, to do something that men are going to not like them for, particularly if you like the men. And what really separates the women from the girls is to have the confidence to say, I sort of like you. We've had a good time. You might not ask me out. You might not, you know, have lunch with me, but you can't do that, and you can't do it to other women. So I think once more it's an issue of power, that if women think that their best venue to power is the approval of a man, they're going to put up with a lot of junky behavior, both for themselves and, and, and for other people. And that takes a long time to, di to dilute and to dissolve. I mean, eventually you learn that you waste a lot of time trying to get men to approve of you, and it's much more efficient to just do it yourself. But I think you have to be kind of old and tired and worn out, and uh, you have to go through a lot first. But I think we need to tell that to our daughters so they don't have to be quite so worn out before they get to that point. Uh, when mid-19th century laws didn't promote civility towards recently released slaves, laws have been needed as recently as the 1960s to enable blacks to vote. How can sexual harassment hope to be different? Uh, well, I, I, I think that's, that's easy to answer. I think, in fact, the, the differences are uh, self-evident or, or, or are generally evident. No? Why? Well, because there was not a, a series of laws that kept uh, women in legal servitude. Oh, yes, there were. Legal servitude? Yes, women couldn't hold property. They had no rights to their children. They couldn't vote. They couldn't uh, divorce. I really have a problem in, you know, with, with, with seeing the condition of American women is identical with the condition of, of black slaves. I don't think anybody's I mean, saying it's identical, well, but it's similar. Well, I, I, don't, I don't know. I, I, I thought I was, what, what I was hearing was protestations that the, that the conditions were identical. No. no. You said there was no legal servitude. No legal servitude. Well. There's a difference between servitude and slavery. No. A man owned his... One of the ways that you define a slave is, or a servant, is that he or she has no rights to property. He or she can be told to move wherever the powerful one uh, says he or she has to move and can't vote and can be beaten yeah. and has no recourse yeah, and can't walk out of a marriage. Well, can be raped. I don't know. You know I don't think there were... I don't, you know, I, I really don't think there were any... Laws that uh, rape in that marriage that, is still legal. Yeah, but this is this is within the pathology of uh, this is within the, the pathology of marriage and the pathology of the law. Yeah, and and and, and the law certainly certainly patriarchal. But I mean, I, I I will say I would say again, I don't accept an equivalent situation between American women and black slaves. I think it's I think it's sophistry.
we're talking about two groups that have been that have that have been denied their power as human beings. I mean that that certainly I accept. Uh, and how how do you how do you resolve it? I think by a combination of law, particularly by enforceable law, and by uh, in, in in education. I mean the tr the problem is that we have we have serious difficulty in terms of American education and in terms of American law. Uh, the there there's a general increasing or decreasing control of behavior in the United States uh, as it is affected by by law. There, I mean, we, we have always been a relatively lawless society and we have not become less so. We may have, we may have become a more litigious society, but we are really having trouble have, making our laws stick. We are having trouble preserving civic order in the street. Uh, at the same time, we have thrown off a number of traditional moral imperatives, which, for, for however unenlightened they may have been, they did serve to keep people in line. It's very difficult to have the sexual revolution, for example, in the 60s, on the one hand, uh, when, when the, its vulgarized notion as perceived on the street is that you get to do what you want to do. No, only if you're male. Oh, I don't Once think again, so. I'm sorry, no? nobody asked women in the 60s what our definition of the sexual revolution is. Nobody wants oh, to know about female no, Mary, desire. Mary, that's, that's a statement, that's too overweening nobody, a statement to, 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 to be accurate. The sexual revolution was a revolution largely based in terms of male desire. And when women were saying things like, this is not what we want, this is not working for us, Nobody wanted to hear about it. Women are still trying to talk about, to describe what the sh If they had been, we wouldn't be here tonight. It isn't, it isn't true that nobody listened. Well, I think that one of the reasons that people listen is because they got sued if they didn't. I think we're still at the very beginning of a discussion about what male and female desire might, might constitute, what the differences are, and it is still exceedingly different for a woman to speak or to write from a genuinely female eye, which God forbid it isn't heterosexual, for example. That still has not been brought into the, into the, into the discourse into the larger conversation, everything is still so framed in terms of male desire, in terms of the male gaze, in terms of the male fantasy of what women would want. We haven't, okay, we've begun. I, I think I have to tell you we have begun. It would, be, it would be too extreme to say that, but we've only begun. And you guys have been talking a lot longer than we have. That may be the note on which we, we, we close down.